This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Father, as we gather this morning to open your word, uh, we invite you to speak, to have your way, uh, to remind us of the glorious history we have as followers of Jesus, the powerful present, and the hopeful future. Um, Father, would you speak to our souls as only you can? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, it's uh, daylight savings. It's, it's a terrible day overall, but we do get an hour uh, extra of daylight, and I, for one, am really excited for that. So we're glad you're here this morning. We're starting a new uh, series today that, uh, like Dan mentioned, is going to go for a number of months as we explore together the book of Acts, the book of Acts. And I'm going to ask you to turn there. Acts chapter 1 is where we will be camping out today. And as you turn there, I'm going to turn to Matthew because um, in some ways Jesus lays the foundation that we want to jump off into in Acts far earlier than the book of Acts. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in 13, Matthew records this, verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, look up at me for just a moment. Um, anytime Jesus asked a question to the people around him, this was one of his main teaching devices, but I can only imagine that when he asks his disciples a question, um, they get a little bit nervous. Okay, now this is one he asks, all right, what, what's everybody saying? What's sort of, what's the word on the street about who I am? And listen to the way that they respond. It says, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So no clear consensus as far as the word on the street goes. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? Now, this is a loaded question. <laughs> this is like a wife asking her husband, how do I look in this dress? You know, the answer determines the rest of the day, doesn't it? And so this is Jesus is asking them a question that has some weightiness to it. He says, all right, now everybody else, they're, they're undecided about who I am, but, but I want to know, who do you say I am. And you wonder if he looked at Peter or if Peter's just the one whose hand is sort of always in the air and foot always in the mouth. But this time he gets it right. And Simon Peter replied, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, you got. The test, right, Simon. <laughs> Congratulations. You're going to move on to the next grade. And I tell you, you are Peter. So, so you're no longer Simon, but you're Peter. It's where it means rock. And Jesus says, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, to say the least, this is a much debated passage of scripture throughout church history. Um, the, the Catholic stream of Christianity will point back to verse 18 and say, well, well, Peter is the first in a long line of popes. 
that God is building his church upon. Others will say, no, it wasn't Peter as a person necessarily that Jesus was going to build his church on, but it was this affirmation of faith that Peter said, he got the question right. You are the Christ. You're the son of God. And you and you alone is salvation. And so people fight wars over this kind of thing. What did he mean? Well, well, here's one thing that's not debated. Who is doing the building? Jesus. Now, whether he's building it on Peter and built it on Peter, I think you can make a case for that scripturally. I don't think you can um, make a case for his papal authority, but I think you can make a case that God used him in a significant way in the first century to build up the church. You can also say that it was his affirmation of faith. Either way, what's not debated in this passage of scripture is who is doing the building? Jesus. He says, I will build, and it's whose church? It's his. It's his. And so before Jesus is crucified, he makes a promise that the gates of hell, he says, will not prevail against my church. Evil and darkness and suffering and trial and pain, nothing in all of the ages is going to be able to snuff out my church. It will remain. I will sustain it. And I will not just sustain it, but I will build it. Now, that's a great promise. If we were to go back and try to unpack from a logical standpoint how you and I were sitting here today, we'd be in trouble. We'd be in trouble. Because the church is both undeniable, you're here, we are a church, we're a gathered body of believers who believe in the deity and the sonship and and the restoration that Jesus has provided. We're a church, a gathered people, but it's also unexplainable. I mean, from a purely natural standpoint, the church in no way, shape, or form should have survived the first century. And so if you look at it, the only reason we're here is because Jesus made good on his promise. He didn't promise and he didn't predict a place. He predicted a people. He predicted a movement. That's what the church is. It's this growing group of people who went out after he said, um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, go therefore to his disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. So nobody is outside of the bounds of who this message is for, Jesus says. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And he says, behold, I'm with you. How long? Always, even until the end of the age. So, always would encompass today, would it not? So Jesus makes this promise. And I want you to, I want to sort of paint a picture for you this morning. He says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pour my energy. I'm going to pour my power. I'm going to pour my provision into this group, this gathered body of people that we're going to call the church, and I am going to say that church will remain. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus makes good on this promise, and what he does is he plugs us in essentially to this movement that's been flowing ever since he made this declaration in Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to do something, I'm going to build, and I'm going to work. And so, 
in the first century after Jesus um, died and was, was crucified, was dead and buried and rose again, we had this group of followers of Christ. This sort of ragtag band of people whom the world would not have chosen. They were uneducated, unschooled, ordinary men leading this revolution, as it were. And it was when you looked at the Roman Empire and the Caesar. It was this group of people who said, we're going to gather in homes and we're going to gather in public places and we're going to love each other and we're going to sell some of our stuff so that everybody has enough. And we're going to invest in the world around us. And even as persecution started to break out and these followers of Jesus were killed for declaring what Peter affirmed, this movement just continued. It's almost as though it had some divine power behind it. Because this 2,000-year-old movement of Judaism ended essentially in 70 A.D., where the temple was wiped out the last time that the Jewish people had sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins was in 70 AD. And that movement that was a few thousand year old, years old with prominent scholars and good leadership ended that day as it was. And yet, this little sort of rogue group of followers continues to grow, continues to expand. Through the ages and, and early on, we have what, what scholars call these church fathers. And these church fathers, they write um, a ton. They unpack theology. They copied almost nine or almost 100% of the entire New Testament. If we were to lose all the original manuscripts that we have, we would still have close to 100% of the New Testament writings based on what the church fathers copied and wrote in their books. And so God continues to build his church, but it wasn't all just fun and games. During this time period, between about 180 and 315 or so, followers of Jesus are stuck on stakes, covered in tar, and lit on fire in order to light up the Caesar's night parties. And as hard as the Roman Empire tries to end this movement, it only continues to grow. And in 315, uh, uh, some would argue 325, but in in 313, 314, um, you may have heard that um, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Debates out as to whether or not that was a good or bad thing, but it happened. And in these next few hundred years, from um, the early 300s to the late 700s, about 787, they had these church councils, and they affirmed and confirmed all these church doctrines. We get the Apostles' Creed from that time period. We get a lot of the creeds that many followers of Jesus will still hold to as core convictions of the Christian faith during that time period. Well, after that, from 800 to about 1200, we have this period called the Dark Ages. No light for that, okay? It's only called the Dark Ages because there wasn't a lot that came out of it that was um, notable. We called the Dark Ages looking back. <laughs> they didn't call it the Dark Ages when they were in it. But I'm going to fast forward. <laughs> maybe they did. Maybe they're like, this is, there was a lot of plagues and such, so maybe they did. But 1517, a man named Martin Luther says to the Catholic Church, I think you might be a little bit off. I think that salvation comes by grace alone, faith alone, in Jesus 
alone. And he nails 95 theses to this Wittenberg door. And and unbeknownst to him starts what we would call now the Protestant Reformation. Well, that movement continues to grow, right? right, Out of this band of a handful of followers, right? In first century Judaism, whose leader is killed, raises from the dead, and then disappears on him. Okay? Now, now, now. You follow that down, and logically, it's tough to get to this point, but people get on boats, and they sail from Western Europe over to the United States, and in the United States, Christianity begins to flourish under the leadership of these Puritans who write these deep doctrinal books that are really difficult. Go read a few of them. I dare you, okay? Um, you have the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and other men who, who God uses to take this movement and continue to push it out. And what started in this tiny corner of the Middle East has grown and grown and grown. And it's as though not the church is on the move as much as God is on the move. It's undeniable. And it's unexplainable. And so in 1979... South Fellowship Church meets for the first time. Coming up on 35 years this fall. Connected to a much bigger story. Connected to a much bigger reality, this narrative that God is unpacking and that he's telling, the story he's declaring amongst all the nations, this gospel and grace and mercy isn't just for them, it's for you. And the movement continues to push forward and continues to grow. See, Jesus made a promise. He made a promise. He said, I will be with you even to the very end of the age. And the gates of hell will not then and will not now prevail against my church. Welcome to the story of the book of Acts. Not just a story about what happened. It is most definitely that. But it's a story about what happens Because this Jesus, as we'll learn, is not done, but he's still on the move. And here's my hope. My hope this morning and my hope through this whole series is that recognizing you're part of a movement that started 2,000 years ago. When followers of Jesus boldly declared before Caesar and before anybody else who would give them an audience, he was dead and he's alive, he walked out of the grave. recognizing that, that you're part of this movement, this Jesus movement should revolutionize our faith and increase our confidence. It should. When we realize we're plugged into this and Jesus' declaration, I'm going to build and I'm going to do it and I'm at work and you're here because of that, when we recognize the whole grand escape of God's story he's telling and we realize that he wants to take us and he wants to plug us into what he's doing It changes things from a personal faith that I have. And it is that, but it's not only that. It's an attachment to the movement of God throughout the course of history. 
My prayer is that you'd get a bigger picture, and as you get that bigger picture, you'd have more grounding, your faith would increase, your boldness in declaring the glorious name of Jesus would increase, and your joy as you walk with him would be more full. Well, I want to zoom back and ask the question, how did this movement start? And the best place for us to do that biblically is the book of Acts. As you turn there, let me give you a little bit of background on this book. Um, Acts is primarily a narrative. It's primarily history. It's a story about how this church started and how our church came to be by implication of what happened there. It's also a theology book, and there's some debate about that. A lot of people have wrestled with this question. Is the book of Acts um, prescriptive? Does it tell us what to do? Or is it descriptive? Does it tell us what happened? The answer is yes. Yes. I love to ride the middle. But I think it's true. Now, some areas we're going to get to and go, definitely not prescriptive. It's not telling us what to do when the disciples pick a replacement disciple for Judas and throw the die down and choose that way. Okay, I don't necessarily think we should need to go there in order to be true to the scriptures, but there's going to be a lot of things we read that are prescriptive. It's all descriptive. It tells us what happened. And see, this historic record, we're going to spend probably the better part of a year in it, but it's going to tell us about the explosive growth of the church that's both undeniable and unexplainable that starts in ancient Jerusalem and goes to every corner of the globe. It's 28 chapters cover about 30 years of church history. It introduces us, this book introduces us to the first local church. It introduces us to the first time people are referred to as Christians, little Christs. It tells us about um, deacons and elders in these early churches. It talks about the first mission movement that the world is still not recovered from. When Paul says, I'll go, I'll go. Where do you want me to go? Well, we don't know. Get on the boat and and head out. Done, done. It talks about the first Gentile Christians, these followers of Jesus who weren't part of this original Judaism that Christianity was birthed out of. It was this declaration, the church and the grace of God is for everybody. And finally, it tells us about persecution about people who lost their life because of their declaration that Jesus is Lord. It's your story. It's it's our story. It tells us the first 30 years of how this narrative started and God has been at work for the last 2,000 years getting you to the place you are today because of his promise. Nothing, nothing will stop my church. Well, the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. Luke was a doctor. Um, the second half of the book of Acts, you can see that Luke is a part of, he's, he's in, he's telling it from his own perspective. But for the most part, the book of Acts and his first book, Luke, were um, a compilation of research that he did during the time um, that he was writing. And so let me um, open up Acts chapter 1 and get us rolling. Here's the way Dr. Luke starts his book. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus. Now, just a quick time out. Promise I won't do that. It'd take us a really long time to get through Acts if I did that at the end of every verse. But 
Um, Theophilus, there's a lot of debate on who this was. Some think he was a high-ranking Roman official. Others think it may have been a pseudonym for somebody else. Some people would say the name literally means um, loved by God, and so he's writing just sort of generally to Christians. I tend to think it's somebody high-ranking in the Roman Empire that Luke had a hearing with. And he says, I've dealt with, in my first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. Luke writes, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days, for 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, Luke alludes to this fact that really the book of Acts is a second volume of a two-part set that we should really view as one. His first book was the book of Luke. And in that, if you flip over to Luke, he gives us in his intro a little bit what I would consider more complete explanation as to why he wrote these books. Listen to what he says there. Verses 1 through 4 of Luke chapter 1. And as much as many have... Um, undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, they've delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, Luke's gospel is um, one of the best pieces of ancient Greek writing that exists. It's, it's most definitely the writing of somebody who's well-educated, well-trained, and it's beautifully written as far as its Greek goes. And he goes on to say that you may, so purpose statement, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. So Luke's going to tell a story. But he's going to tell this story not just in order to tell it about what happened with this early church in the first mm, few decades of its existence. But he wants to tell the story. He wants to write his historical account so that Theophilus would know and so that you and I would know with certainty things that people saw and touched and heard. So I want to point out three things that are central to this movement of followers of Jesus. And Luke makes this point in the very beginning of his book that any movement, that this movement of followers of Jesus has a foundation that's forged in the past. This is not a new thing. This is an ancient thing. That these followers of Jesus would gather together at the risk of their life and say, no, 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 this is not about what we believe to be true as followers of Jesus. Not early on, that's not what it was about. For these followers of Christ right here, it was about what they saw. And what they saw was that this man, Jesus, was dead, hung on a Roman cross, buried in a tomb. And hey, here's the thing. You're going to hear as we approach Easter, the History Channel is going to be pumping out all of these supposed experts. And they're going to tell you why this could never have happened. Here's the thing. The Romans were really good at killing people. They're really good at it. They didn't mess up a whole lot. And they didn't mess up on Jesus either. They really killed him. They played him in a tomb. And a few days later, he walked out. 
Amen. Yeah, I mean, we can amen on Easter, but we can also amen about that anytime, right? I mean, that's the, so followers of Jesus are saying this isn't early on. They're saying this isn't about what we believe. This is about what we saw. He hung on a Roman cross and then he got up and he walked out. And I want you to soak in that for a moment today, that this movement that you are part of, that God says, hey, I'm still building my church. I'm still at work. I'm still moving in the world today. It's an outflow of the fact that Jesus walks out of the tomb. And these early followers of Christ, they couldn't get over it. They couldn't get over it, and so people would come to them, and they would say, you either renounce Jesus as Lord and admit that Caesar's Lord or we'll kill you. And they said, well, then you're going to have to kill us. One of the reasons we are sitting in this place today and know the name of Jesus is because those first followers of Jesus suffered well. They suffered well. And they were unwilling to say, no, we will not renounce the name of Jesus. They were convinced this is their foundation. No, he was dead and he is alive. So much so that it says that for 40 days, Jesus had to prove that he was alive. I mean, how's he do that? It's like, hey, so, so Thomas, you want to touch my hand? Touch it. You want to touch my side, Thomas, and my feet? Look at him. And he goes and he has meals with his followers. My guess is he probably weeps over Judas's betrayal with them. And for 40 days, he proves. See, the only way, I don't, you don't need to prove you're alive. Well, some of you do. I mean, you maybe check. Okay, you're with me, great. But we don't need to prove we're alive. One of the ways you know Jesus was dead, he had to prove he was alive. So Luke writes about that. But these early followers of Jesus would say over and over and over again, the resurrection is the foundation upon which our faith is formed. And it's the foundation of yours too, friends. Here's the thing. Our foundations will always be questioned when the storms of life come. It's important that we understand in this movement of followers of Christ, they consistently pointed back to, no, he was dead and he's alive. And regardless of what comes in life, that's true. That's true. And it shaped their whole worldview. Listen to the way that N.T. Wright puts it. He says this. The resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It introduces the world. His kingdom is now. It's the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of resurrection is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now, catch this, you are now invited to belong to it. He says this movement that was founded in the past is now in the present and you're invited Ground your life in the foundation of the resurrection. Be part of this movement about Jesus. It's not about what they believed. It was about what they saw. Listen to the way that this was recorded in the book of Acts by Luke. One of Peter's sermons, he says, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Now that's irony. Whom God raised from the dead. And Peter says, to this, we are witnesses. We saw it. He's dead, and he walked out. 
of the tomb. Paul's going to write similar thing in the book of 1 Corinthians. He's going to talk third hand about it, but he says this, For I delivered to you as, you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So implication, you can go talk to them if you want. Go ask them. They're going to tell you the same thing. This Jesus was dead and he walked out of the tomb. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. Paul writes, it's of first importance. Well, the question is why? Why why is the resurrection so formative and foundational to followers of Jesus? Well, well, first I would say it confirmed that Jesus was who he said he was. You cannot accept the teachings of Jesus and deny the resurrection. It doesn't make sense. It was God's stamp of approval. It was the fact that check cleared and sins were done away with. Grace and mercy were present to all who would believe. How do we know? Jesus walks out of the grave. That's how we know. And so in the book of Romans, Paul writes in uh, chapter 1, verse 4, that he, Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be who he said he was. How do we know? Well, he walked out of the grave. It gave these early followers of Jesus the confidence to face death. It gave them the conviction that Jesus was restoring All things, even the broken things, even the painful things, even the dirty things, he was in and he was working and restoring. Um, I love this quote by Anonymous. Here's what she wrote. She said, the life of Christ lived qualified him for the death that he died. And the death he died qualifies us for the life that he See, if this is our foundation, friends, tell me what's off limits. Like, tell me what's too big for God. Our foundation is he was dead and now he's alive. So the broken relationship, the marriage that's on the rocks, the kid that's wandered away from the faith, the job that just doesn't seem like it's going to come through, realizing you're part of this movement gives you hope to move into that in the future. So, that's the beginning of our movement. We're part of this foundation of people that say, no, this is what I saw. He was dead, and he walked out of the grave. Well, listen to the way that Luke puts this so beautifully in the book of Acts, because he gives us some hints as to what this book is going to be about. He says, in the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus, what's that word? Began. Um, Implication. Although Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended to heaven, and is not present in bodily form anymore, that was simply, Luke, his gospel was simply about what he began to do. Acts is about what he continues to do. And see, all other religions regard their founders having completed his work during his lifetime. Luke says, not so with followers of Jesus. We believe that if he were to take the power out of the church, that the church would cease to have power. The reason that we exist in the way and shape and form that we do is because he is still moving and working. 
And the book of Acts introduces us to this um, reality of the movement of Jesus. And it's this, that not only do we have a foundation that's forged in the past, but we have a, a power that sustains us in the present. See, the implication that Luke drops down is the book of Luke is about what Jesus started. The book of Acts is about what Jesus continued And South Fellowship Church and every church that gathers and lifts lifts high the name of Jesus is about what he continues. He's still at work. He's still moving. So Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22. He says, in him you are also being built together as if it's present and now into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. See, this is great news because if he's at work, if his power is present in the church and in the lives who are followers of Jesus, nothing is off limits. There's no situation in your life as you look at this movement and the way it survived and the way God worked and the way God preserved and the way he sustained as we get to today, there's nothing that's too big for him. Nothing. And so people of this movement, followers of Christ, would affirm his power is now, it's real, it's active, it's working. If you see the bigger picture, you start to have a different type of confidence. Here's the way that Andrew Murray stated it when he says, A dead Christ I must do everything for. A living Christ does everything for me. So when Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 12, you will do greater things than even I. You think he meant it? I mean, I know theologians love to wrestle about that verse, but if we just say we take it at face value, that what he's saying is that followers of Jesus are going to make a bigger impact on the world than he did, that maybe he's going to use us to make his impact, I think it might give us a little bit of a different conviction about the power that's present in our our impact in the world and the way that he is working in us to make a difference. Friends, don't limit your dreams. Don't limit the way that God might use you to make an impact for his kingdom. I know there's some things that look off limits and that look too big, but hey, if you were to go and gather with these first century disciples around their campfire at night and tell them, hey, someday on every corner of the globe, the name of Jesus will be magnified. Someday a third of people around the world will be followers of Jesus. Now it's debated, I get that, but... They would have thought no way. I mean, just to throw out there for those early disciples who are getting stoned for what they believe, hey, someday, someday, Christianity is going to be the religion of the Roman Empire. They didn't have a category in their brain for that. And hey, you don't have a category in your brain for some of the things God wants to do in you. And one of the only ways you start to actually believe that is to see the whole story. So is there a family member that's just quote-unquote too far gone? A work situation that's just out of control? A country that's 
in your opinion, going morally down a direction that it just shouldn't go? What's too big? What's too big? The early followers of Christ did not have anything you don't have. They didn't have a trump card in their back pocket that you don't have. They simply had the Holy Spirit in their lives. Newsflash, so do you. So do you. More to come on that in the next few weeks, though. Here's the way that this passage intro to this book uh, ends, and and we'll conclude here in a moment as well. Verse 3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Wouldn't you have loved to be in one of Jesus's sessions, uh, those early days, those 40 days in between his resurrection and his ascension where he teaches them about the kingdom of God? The fact that God is invading the world and he's restoring things. His resurrection is just the first fruits. It's just the hint of all that God is going to do. That his rule and reign is present and his rule and reign is now. See, early Jesus followers, they had this conviction, not just that they they were forged in the past and not just that they had this present power in their lives now, but they also had this vision Pressing them towards a better future. Pressing them towards a better future. See, early followers of Jesus, early people of this movement, they held intention a better world is possible and a new world is guaranteed. They wrestled with that. They knew this new world was guaranteed, but they also believed that He came to set the captives free. That the blind received sight, and the lame walked, and those in prison were released. See, Jesus didn't just say, hey, it's going to be better someday. He said, my followers will make this a better world. It's core to being a follower of Jesus. We believe that there's hope. Here's the trouble. Will you look at me for just a second? Is that true of us? I mean, a lot of Christians that I talk to, a lot of followers of Jesus I talk to, this is a side note, probably because of some um, less than biblical eschatology, believe that the world is just getting worse, and we're heading down this path, and there's no hope. I mean, Christians can be depressing. (laughs) Was Jesus that way? No, he was not. He was not. He said, I've come to set the captives free. It's a possibility. It can be a reality. A new world is on the horizon. And here's my conviction, you guys. Here's my conviction. If we don't believe that God makes a difference in our world today, will we ever step out so that he can make a difference through us? If we just believe we're just going to sit back and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, Will we ever step in and say, God, use my life? See, followers of Jesus throughout history have had this vision that the world can become a better place because of the way that Jesus works in his people. I wasn't gonna, I I have these in my notes. I wasn't gonna talk to to you about them, but I just feel like I need to because I don't think you believe me, okay? (laughs) So, So just bird's eye view. Is the world getting, quote-unquote, better? Great question. I'm glad you asked that. 
In 1970, there were over, uh, over 958 million people who were considered chronically hungry. 1970, 258. In 2010, there were slightly fewer, 925 million people. Yet, in 1970, the world's population was only 3.7 billion. In 2010, it's 6.8 billion. When you look at the ratio of people to the global population, um, 25% of the world was hungry in 1970. Only 13.6% of the world was considered chronically hungry in 2010. That's a 47% decrease in 40 years. Infant mortality. Uh, Before the Industrial Revolution, um, one out of every five children died before one year old. Worldwide, by 2003, that number has dropped to 57, a 72% reduction in infant mortality. For most of human history, life expectancy has averaged between 20 and 30 years. By 2003, life expectancy had climbed to 66.8 years. Wealth. This one's interesting. For the first 1,000 years after Christ, most people lived on $1 a day or $365 annually. I get it where you're just going, well, Ryan, a dollar was a lot different back then. Great. Once adjusted for inflation, okay, by 2001, that had grown to $6,000 annually, a 923% increase. Literacy. From 1970 to the early 2000s, global illiteracy fell from 46% to 18%. Now, part of that impact is because of followers of Jesus saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. With the conviction that it just For these early followers, it looked nothing like what they thought it would look like. You think of the the emotional roller coaster. Jesus is alive. Jesus is dead. Jesus has risen from the grave. Jesus has disappeared. And they're going, "Well, well, what's the plan for the future? Here's the plan. Here's the plan. Here's the plan. And catch this. This has been the plan throughout the movement, and it will be the plan into the future. Follow him. Release your dream. Release your hope. Because, man, theirs would have been way too small. And he says, I'll carry you along. The Holy Spirit will work. You have a foundation that's forged in the past. You have a power that's present right now. And you have a future that's brighter than you could imagine with your eyes alone. See, people of this movement have always been carried by those three things. And they've made a massive difference in our world. I pray that as we recognize our place in his story, that he might use us to do the same. Would you pray with me as we close? This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.